The passage I'm going to be reading uh, this morning is in Luke chapter 16. So Luke chapter 16, I'm going to begin reading at verse 16. And Lord willing, we're going to read down to the end of the chapter. And this is the section that we'll be considering this morning. So Luke 16, 16, down to the end of verse 31. This is the word of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, and now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Before we consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, with all the various things that are going on, the things that we were heard about in the announcements, Lord, we just pray that your Spirit will be with us for all the things that we do, that your Spirit will guide us and lead us and fill us so that we can truly honor you so we can truly proclaim your truth, so that we can be emboldened uh, to preach the gospel, to share about Jesus Christ, but in a way which is uh, in accordance with his character. I pray that you will give us a holy boldness, but also a, a great compassion and mercy uh, and love and humility. Uh, Father, I pray that you will help us as a church to uh, to get along, uh, to do what is pleasing and honoring to you, to do things in a way which honors you. Father, I pray that you will give us wisdom as we come towards the business meeting. Lord, I pray that your spirit will 
will just give us a glimpse into your profound plan for us, that you will allow us to see what your agenda points are, that you will allow us to follow you, to be led by you truly, not to lag behind and not to run ahead, but to truly follow you as your spirit leads us and as your spirit opens your word to give us truth and understanding and wisdom. Father, I pray that you will help us to move forward together, that you will enable us to simply bear the fruit of the Spirit, to have the marks of your children, to love one another, and to honor others ahead of ourselves. Father, for those who are not with us this morning, we pray that you will be with them, draw them close to your side, give them comfort and strength, uh, physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Help them to know that even as uh, capacities and powers diminish, that while the outward person can be deteriorating and wasting away, the inner person of the heart can be renewed day by day by your grace. So Lord, we ask that this will be a present reality and consciously experienced by your children wherever they are. Uh, Draw them close to yourself and help them to know and feel your presence uh, with them this morning. Lord, we thank you and we rejoice uh, for uh, the gift of life. We thank you uh, for Brian and Jenna's daughter. We pray that you will uh, work in her, that she will, from the earliest possible age, uh, know you and love you, that she will be born again. And Lord, I pray that you will give uh, Brian and Jenna the wisdom and the Christ-like character that they need uh, to raise her in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We truly desire to understand your word this morning in all of its glory and all of its facets to know what it means and how it applies and so lord we look to you now by your spirit help us to know you through your word for we ask it in jesus name amen now the next sunday is a real treat for you I will not be preaching, so you'll be happy to know that. You will want to come and invite your friends uh, next Sunday. Uh, we have some mission reports that are going to be given. We have uh, Kids Alive here, and they're going to be talking about the project that we were partners with in Zambia, uh, some of the work that was going on uh, with the Zambia building project, and so they're going to have uh, Kids Alive staff here who are going to be sharing with us about what that project has accomplished. It's actually very exciting. Uh, the way the Lord has been at work over there. So it's just a beautiful thing to see how the Lord is at work in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of areas. And so you're going to want to be here uh, for that. And then during the adult Sunday school time at 930, uh, I'm going to be sharing about my uh, trip to Cuba this last summer, teaching pastors. And I want to also talk a little bit about what theological education looks like for pastors and church leaders around the world today. I'm not an expert uh, in that field, but I know a little bit about it. And also... Uh, I want to to share with you some uh, relatively, to me, exciting opportunities that uh, I might have to go and do further teaching uh, overseas over the next couple of years. Uh, I have to book usually a few years in advance, and so we're looking at lining up a few uh, teaching opportunities in some very interesting places, and so you will want to know uh, about that so that you can pray. And so that you can write big checks to send me. 
just so you know. That's that's going to be smuggled in at the very end, sort of in the fine print or subliminal messages. I'm going to use PowerPoint. Everyone's going to really t- quickly toggle through, you know, give money to the trip, you know, that sort of thing. It's going to be a delight. Um, now, this passage here, uh, Luke chapter 16, the second half, Luke's gospel is very carefully constructed. And in taking larger chunks of it, as we've worked all the way through uh, up until this point, uh, I hope that you've been able to see some of the flow of the passages. That's been part of my goal, is to try to show how the, the individual narratives, the teaching blocks, they really are put together to build up into this large-scale, sort of coherent whole. This section tends to be baffling. In fact, in, in my version of the Bible translation here, uh, there's a subheading that says, Additional Teachings. I'm not sure if you have anything like that. So uh, before verse 16 and then through verse 18, it's just sort of additional teachings. And then the subheading is the rich man and Lazarus. You know, we get on common ground, familiar ground when we hit a parable. And so they know how to tie that in with a heading. But what does it mean, additional teachings? And so scholars, they go all over the place. And how does this section fit? Because Luke's gospel is very carefully constructed. Do we really think he got to verses 16, 17, and 18 when he's writing the material? And he, he has stuff he wants to say. He has no idea where to put it. So he just kind of smuggles it in and then moves on. I mean, if you actually drop out those three verses, 16, 17, and 18, the story of the rich man and Lazarus fits perfectly with what Jesus has just said in the first 15 verses. I mean, the first 15 verses are about using worldly wealth, using money and resources to be a blessing to other people for eternal matters, for from an eternal perspective. How can I use the things that God has given me? How can I prioritize how I spend my money and spend my time and spend all of the gifts God has given me to reach the world so that when I stand before God, I'm welcomed into glory and get to see many friends, get to see many people who have been blessed through the life that I have lived. And it's not a works righteousness. It doesn't mean that you earn your way into heaven by being good enough or by giving enough or anything like that. But it's simply Jesus saying, listen, in the same way that people in the world will make plans for their future, they'll save up for retirement or whatever. They're concerned with their future life. How much more so should we be concerned with our eternal life? How much more so should we put time and effort into saving up for glory, being ready for then. I mean, we all want to be ready to retire and live at a few more years, hopefully, in this world. But what about eternity to come? I mean, shouldn't that be what occupies our minds? Shouldn't that be what occupies our hearts and our attention? We should be working for them. And then Jesus says that one of the ways that you can tell who, who your boss is is by where your heart is. Who are you serving? You can't serve two masters. If you're living for money, you are not living for God. You're not. And vice versa, if you're living for God, you will not be living for money. You can't. You cannot. No one. No one can serve two masters. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You'll love one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's what Jesus says. And so the Pharisees are mocking Jesus. They're sneering because they love money. Literally, the text is, they're friends of money. And then Jesus says, you want to justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly 
money, power, reputation, uh, sort of the hypocrisy that wants people to think in terms of the Pharisees and maybe in terms of us, uh, the reputation that we want. We want people to think that we're godly. We want people to think that we're wonderful Christians. We want people to think that we're just great people. And God, Jesus says, God hates all of that stuff. All the things that people value so highly, being important, being a somebody, whether it's in, you know, politics or, or business or sports or religion, like whatever we do to try to make ourselves important, God hates that. The world runs after that. The world runs after things that make us a somebody. I want to be a somebody, whether it's through education or athletics or money or whatever. And Jesus says, you know what? What the world loves, it's detestable to God. God isn't interested so much in, in you know, how important and powerful and rich you are. God is concerned with your heart. He looks on the inside. And if your heart is right, if your heart is right with God, then you can be rich with money. If your heart is right with God, then you can have power. If your heart is right with God, then you can have prestige. If your heart is right with God, then you can be famous. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things, except when they're made an end in themselves. When the goal is to get rich, as Paul says when he writes to Timothy, you know, the desire to get rich is a sin. It is a trap that many have fallen into. Being rich isn't a sin. But that covetous desire to be rich, according to the word of God, is. So then this parable of the rich man and Lazarus would fit perfectly after that teaching. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have this section, verses 16, 17, and 18. So why? Why does the Spirit lead Luke to write these words before that parable? Well, if you look at it carefully, you'll notice that there's there's a literary inclusio. That is, there are literary brackets. There are phrases that mark off the beginning and the end of the passage as a unit. And that's found in verse 16 and in verse 31. The law and the prophets, verse 16. Moses and the prophets, verse 31. And you can just, in, in a Jewish circle, you can just interchange Moses and the law. They mean exactly the same thing. They have exactly the same reference. That is the law of God that came through Moses, the first five books of the Bible. So the law and the prophets, verse 16. Moses and the prophets, verse 31. And then obviously in verse 17 as well. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. So verse 16, the law and the prophets. Verse 29, Moses and the prophets. Verse 31, Moses and the prophets. Verse 17, nothing is ever going to fall out of the word of God, the law of God. So what Luke is doing is, is he's putting together some, the teachings of Jesus in a way to show you that this section, for all the way from 16 through 31, it is running on the foundational principle of the permanency and the eternal validity of the Word of God. You must build your life on the Word of God, law and the prophets. That's a phrase used often as just as a summary of the Old Testament. 
And so in Jesus' day, when they don't have the New Testament written yet, you know, this is a way of referring to the Word of God. The Word of God is not going to fail. The Word of God is not going to go out of style. You know, the Word of God is not going to teach you, you know, one thing in terms of morality, then teach you something totally different later on. Because it's the Word of an unchanging God. And so if you're going to build your life, you don't build your life on what the human societies want. We do not build our lives on the dictates of the sin nature or human wisdom. We do not build our lives on the basis of what the world finds valuable. We build our lives on the basis of what God himself highly values. And where are we going to find that? We're going to find that in one place and one place alone. That is in his ever-abiding permanently valid, permanently authoritative word. The law and the prophets, Jesus said, were proclaimed until John, that is, until John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Now, this there's translation issues with this verse. Uh, the idea is that the Old Testament has been proclaimed until John the Baptist. When John the Baptist arrives, now there's a new era of revelation because Jesus has come. And because Jesus has come, now there is a proclamation of the kingdom of God bound up with Jesus, who is the king. The kingdom of God is present with Jesus because the king is present with Jesus. He is the king, the one who embodies the rule and reign of God. And so where you have the king who embodies the rule and reign of God, you have the kingdom of God. So you couldn't proclaim that kingdom until the king showed up, but now he's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, is the early message, because the king is at hand. The king is present. So the law was proclaimed until Jesus. Now you have John the Baptist witnessing to Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Or possibly, because it's, it's a passive tense, people are being forced into it. And scholars are divided. Uh, and, and, and I don't know. Uh, it's either people are being forced into it or people are forcing their way in. And I'm, I'm not sure which one. Now, what it means then, generally, is either because the kingdom of God is here, there is an urgency where people are repenting and they are this is a compulsion where they have to get in and i think that there's there's a sense of which you know the, the song that we sang during uh, the offering when it's when it's sung well uh, in in terms of the musicality of it and and laura knows a lot more about this than I do. So uh, you can, you can get up and preach if, if this isn't going well. Uh, as I try to explain this, <laughs> you know, if it's, if it's being sung well, then there, there's a theological message, but there's also, as it builds, there should be an intensity and an urgency and a passion of it, or I am going to Jesus. Like, like there's, I am not going to be stopped from going to Jesus. And if I wait until everything's fine, I'm never going to go. And it's, it's almost like there's this reflection that yields to this passionate intensity. I will arise and go to Jesus. I, I got to go to Jesus. And there's a sense in which that may be what's being said here. People are forcing their way in when they see who Jesus is, and when they begin to understand who they are. I have got to get to Jesus. And we see the, the woman subject to bleeding. She has to get to Jesus through the crowds. Uh, we see Zacchaeus he, coming up. He has to get to Jesus no matter what. I will not be stopped from getting to Jesus. Now, that may be the force of it. And if, it's, if it is, then that's true theologically. 
But it might also be saying, if it's a passive, I am forced into it, meaning that in the same way that when you had the uh, the parable of the great feast, where everyone who's invited says, no, I don't want to go. And then the master sends out his servant and says, go out into all the areas, the alleyways, find the lame, the blind, the poor, and bring them in, compel them to come in. So it may be that the gospel messengers go out and it's like they're, they're as a, as a, insistent, persistent host gets a hold of people and says, okay, you're coming in. You need to come in. You need to come in and eat. Come and eat. And so it's either that you are being led and you are being brought in, forced in, or you, because of the urgency, are forcing yourself in because of what the Lord has done in your heart. And in that sense, the two interpretations actually really aren't that different. Because it must be that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in you to create this sense of urgency as you see your sin and as you see your Savior. And so we are forced in, we force ourselves in because of the work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And then he says this, It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So the Old Testament, the Word of God doesn't fall away. It's not annihilated because of the ministry of the kingdom or the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom does not contradict God's previous revelation. In fact, there's an organic connection. The the further revelation, the New Testament revelation, is sort of like the uh, the bud and the flower you know, on the Old Testament branch and root system. So there's an organic connection. It's not contradictory. It doesn't set it aside. It establishes it. It brings it to fulfillment. It's one of the major theological words we find in the Gospels. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now hear that. That means that you can build your life on the word of God with more assurance than you can conduct your day in, day out life on the basis of natural law. You can actually have more certainty that the word of God is always going to be enforced and you could have certainty that the law of gravity is going to work this afternoon. You can absolutely in every possible way Build everything you are now and because of the point that Jesus is making in the previous section and in the rich man and Lazarus, the word of God, the teaching of God, what he has said, it is not just true temporally. It is not just true temporarily. It is not just true for this world, for this life, for this time. It will endure after the heavens and the earth are no more. It will endure when God brings this fi- this order to judgment and creates a new heavens and new earth. The way in the word of God is immutable and sure. It is a foundation on which you can build your life now and your eternal life as well. Nothing is going to alter the purposes of God in his holy word. And then he has verse 18. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then this parable about the eternal state and money and possessions and all of the rest. What is going on? Why this seemingly completely random appeal 
to the issue of divorce and marriage. The only way I can sort it, and I think actually this is something to say something which I think is very important actually. Too often, some people have gone to this one verse, which is the only verse in Luke that talks about divorce, taken one sentence out of the mouth of Jesus. When we know it is not all that he said about divorce, if you just read the Gospel of Matthew. They take one sentence completely out of context. It is not paying any attention whatsoever to why this verse is actually here in this location and build up some sort of whole enormous theology uh, of what God thinks about divorce and what Jesus taught about divorce. And, and of course, this is an important piece of data, reminding ourselves that Jesus barely ever talks about divorce, period. This is an important piece of data, but it is not the only thing Jesus said. And it is only one verse in the whole flow of Luke 16. So why does Jesus say this? Why does Luke record Jesus' words here? Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It seems to me that what Jesus is doing is he is giving just one example of the abiding permanency and authority of the law of God. Just one. And there are all kinds of other things that could be said. There are all kinds of other laws that could have been used. But this one is one that was highly debated in his culture as it is in our society. And Jesus comes down very clearly. If you divorce and just get married to someone else, then in God's eyes, that's adultery. It's very clear. And if someone in that context has been divorced and you remarry them, then you've committed adultery as well. Now, why? Now, in Matthew, Jesus will give exceptions that divorce is permitted in the case of adultery. And in the day and in in Jesus' culture, uh, in society, there was just absolutely no question about whether or not people could remarry after divorce if the divorce happened because of adultery. Everyone did. Uh, it was just like, totally accepted. Uh, the expectation was if you were divorced because your spouse committed adultery, then of course you'd remarry. And, and so that was just part of the, the cultural ethos. So the fact that Jesus doesn't say anything about that, you know, he, he is sort of, we just indicate that he, he expects if you have the right to divorce, if your marriage is broken through adultery and you choose to end it in divorce, then you have the right to remarry. That was just what the, everyone thought. And so if you thought differently, you would have had to make that very, very, very clear. You would have had to specify that. Right? But here Jesus isn't talking about remarriage. He's talking about divorce. And the idea is this. Unless there are proper grounds for divorce, the exception clause in Matthew, unless the divorce is because of adultery, then it is a breaking of the marriage covenant which is itself adulterous. And remarriage in that context is adulterous as well. Because the marriage covenant in God's eyes has not been annulled. It's not really been broken. You, you, there was no legitimate grounds for ending the marriage covenant. And if that's the case, then in a sense, in the covenantal perspective, you're still married. And then it's adultery. Now, that's not something people want to hear today, but it is what Jesus says. 
anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's what the text says. Now, that's where it becomes very important to tie all of the teaching of Jesus together. That is, we know that Jesus grants the exception for adultery in the first place. Adultery, when there is a marriage covenant, actually breaks the marriage covenant and it is ended. And divorce is in some ways just ratifying the decision the adulterous partner made. The marriage covenant is ended. And in my judgment, at that point, uh, the innocent spouse is able to remarry. Paul will also talk about uh, abandonment as a, as a reason for divorce, which also would indicate that what Jesus is saying, or what Luke records Jesus is saying, is not his whole argument. It's not everything that, that was taught, or else you couldn't have exceptions for adultery and abandonment. And others, and I, I, I do, in a sense, I have to be careful, I do kind of track with this a little bit. Then the question becomes, well, what other possible exceptions might there be? Are we given the only two exceptions in scripture, or are we given two exceptions that then allow us to, using sanctified common sense, actually think through other areas which may uh, allow for the legitimacy of divorce? I said that carefully and guardedly, and I'll just give you one example. Is divorce permissible if the husband relentlessly and ceaselessly beats his wife? Or do you say, well, that's not adultery. It's not abandonment, so you can't divorce. Just work that through. In my judgment, it's a theological judgment, and and this is where I I recognize that you you can disagree. In my judgment, the first thing that should happen is that the, the individual should go to jail. And, and that needs to be said. Uh, where there is spousal assault, it is criminal assault. And it is the court system which should be involved in adjudicating those sorts of domestic situations. Uh, regardless of repentance and all of the rest, it, it's still a crime and should be prosecuted as such. But if... Divorce is permissible in the terms of abandonment. Then wouldn't, in a sense, it also be a type, a species of abandonment for someone to make a home so unsafe for another person to live in that they literally have to leave? In other words, if you're allowed to divorce because your partner leaves you and, you know, runs off and lives in Vegas, so then you can get a divorce. What if your partner says, well, I'm just going to live in this house. I'm not leaving. And I'll just just beat you until you leave. Isn't that abandonment too? Aren't you being forced out? Isn't isn't the marriage being completely severed in that regard? So I I would argue that, you know, in terms of common theological sense, we we could could argue that that kind of spousal abuse would also be grounds for divorce. All right. No matter how you parse it, you can think that I'm wrong about that. Uh, But no matter how you parse it, what Jesus does is he gives us an example from the law about the validity and the authority of the word of God. And then he tells this very interesting parable about a rich man and Lazarus. Now, the rich man's name is not Dives. It's sometimes translated. That was a mistake. 
that entered into our our biblical translations. The Latin Vulgate uh, translated rich and wealthy as uh, dives. Uh, Dives means rich and wealthy. It doesn't mean, it's not a proper name. And so it was taken as a proper name, uh, even though it shouldn't have been. Simply means wealthy. And we see that he's rich and he lives in purple and fine linen. So in the, in this day, this is being dressed in the best clothes that there are. Purple dye was extremely expensive because of the way that it was produced. And so was fine linen. So the richest people living in the greatest amount of opulence would have linen undergarments with purple or royal blue robes over top. And so this man is dressed in purple and fine linen and lives in luxury every day. I mean, so he is just absolutely in every every single day. He is just living in luxury, the height of style, the height of opulence, the very best that there is to have. He has, and at his gate, not around the corner, but right at his gate, there is a poor man, a beggar named Lazarus, and Lazarus is a form of the Hebrew word Eleazar, which means the one God helps. And Lazarus reminds you of Job. He has ulcers, he has sores, the dogs come and lick his sores. And this is not supposed to be a comforting thing. You're not supposed to think family pet comforting you. You're supposed to think, because this is what dogs really were in this time, you're supposed to think for the Jews, unclean animals, according to the law, scavengers that basically run around and wild packs and feed off garbage and carry it. That's what dogs were. There's mongrels. I've got a little bit of a, you know, you, you go other, to other places. I remember being in, in Mexico uh, with with Heather and our, our youth group in, when we were at Fairview Baptist in Lindsay. And, you know, you all got these, you know we, we have a problem with feral cats. You know, there are all parts of the world where they have problems with feral dogs. You know, there's all these dog packs just running around all, all over the place. And they're absolutely disgusting. You know, they're, they're mangy and sick and ill-tempered and just nasty. That's, that's what's comforting Lazarus. He's got so many bleeding open sores lying on the street that these mangy dogs just come up and, and lick him. It's not supposed to be a comforting issue. It's supposed to be an issue of, of repulsion. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And there, and he's in Hades, he's in torment, and he looks up at Abraham, and he sees Lazarus there. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And the word for pity, interestingly enough, is the word that for, it's, it's a word for mercy that we get our understanding of, of alms from. It's almsgiving. Send Lazarus, I, I need some mercy, I need some alms. But that's exactly what he did not give Lazarus in while Lazarus was lying at his gate. So now the, the, the roles are completely reversed. I want some mercy. I want some alms. I, I need some, some help. I need some charity. Father Abraham, have pity on me. Have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm agony in this fire. Now it's very important to understand. This is, this is a parable. Uh, this is not a literal depiction of sort of the interim state. In, in the time of Jesus uh, the first century, people had all kinds of views about what it would be like before the day of resurrection and the final judgment. And a very common Jewish view was that there would be 
before the resurrection and final judgment, when you died, you would go to either sort of a good place with Abraham and the the patriarchs and and the Lord, or you would begin to go to a place of of realization of your sin and and your failure and shame and punishment. And another common feature of this Jewish view is that although you couldn't, there was no sort of crossing between the two places, you could see each other. And so Jesus is using this very common Jewish framework in this parable to make this particular, the points that he's making. And Abraham says in verse 25, remember, in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he's comforted here and you are in agony. Now that just runs on the first 15 verses of chapter 16. What is life worth? What is the point of life? What is worth living for in life? Are you living for comfort and luxury and wealth and money and opulence and power and prestige now? Is that what you're doing? Think about the life to come. Think about what happens if the roles are reversed. Do you really want to live in luxury now to exchange that for eternal punishment in the world to come? Is that a good deal? Is that a good bargain? Let's think about what it would be like if you died and you were the richest, most luxury person who lived in the greatest amount of luxury in all of Jerusalem, but you didn't know God. And let's think about what it would be like to be an ulcerous beggar whose only friends and companions are these ratty kind of dogs. And let's think about what would happen if they had true faith and they, they went to be with the Lord. Who would you rather be long term? Let's just think about that. And so Jesus is showing you very clearly, listen, you cannot serve two masters. You either hate the one or love the other, be devoted to one and despise that you cannot serve both God and money. But there's no contest if you're picking the master you want to serve. Serve God, love God. The inequities are not ironed out in this life, but they will be ironed out. God will do what is right and justice will be done. And so this man clearly, in a lot of ways, hasn't changed. Still very self-centered. Send Lazarus. Let Lazarus be my servant. You know, the alms that I never gave to him, send him to bring me some of that stuff. Send him to comfort me. No, no repentance. No, there there isn't a hint here of, you know, I have, I have sinned and, and I I should have taken care of him all those years. Please, please, can I, can I tell Lazarus I'm sorry? Can I repent? Can I, can I seek his forgiveness? I, I could have helped him, but I didn't. There's none of that. It's, it's, hey, send Lazarus to help me. Abraham says, that's not possible. He says, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. He's, he, the, the man is still, he's preoccupied with himself and his circle. No concern for the poor. No concern with beggars. No, send Lazarus back to comfort some other beggar. Like, I wish I could have. Uh, not like, you know, Marley showing, and Marley's goes showing up to Scrooge. Scrooge, look at this. This is the chain that I bore and wear, you know, link by link. You know, look out at all the, you look out and you see all the ghosts, you know, all trying to do something to comfort the poor and the destitute and the oppressed and not able to do anything. And Marley's saying, Scrooge, don't be like me. You know, you still have time. You know, be a blessing to these people. Do something for them. Marley is, is focused on helping others. This rich man, he's not. There's nothing to do with, with go and tell my brothers, take care of the poor. Go and tell my brothers, just, just go and send Lazarus. Let him be the servant. 
Let him go and help my family. And then Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man says, no. No, Father Abraham, you don't get it. The law and the prophets, the word of God, it's not enough. I had the law and the prophets. I didn't listen. The, you're, the, Abraham, you, you go back. You send Lazarus. You send Lazarus to my family because the word of God is not sufficient. It's not what they need. They need a miracle. They need a sign. They need something powerful and important. The word of God is not enough for salvation. And Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now hear that. That means that in all the decisions that you make, and I do suspect that one of the reasons that you have this verse on marriage and divorce is because it is showing you that the word of God is supposed to control every type of relationship and reality that you have particularly the most important ones. So what you do, the money you earn, what you live for, the relationships that you have, it is all governed by the word and the authority of God. You build your life on the word and the authority of the word of God and nothing else and understand that the word of God will outlast the heavens and the earth. It is easier for the heavens and earth to disappear than for the least stroke to fall out of the word of God. And the word of God is actually more powerful than seeing someone rise from the dead. If you will not listen to the word of God, if you will shut your heart to the power and authority and clarity of God's word, then nothing will convince you. You can say, oh, you can see it all day long. As as the people who didn't accept Jesus said, show us a sign in the heavens. Oh, do something impressive after all the impressive things he's already done. The authority isn't in the deeds. The authority is in the word. And the word of God is enough. And I read that and I say, you know what? I'm not sure I agree with that because I'm pretty sure if people saw someone come back from the dead, they would believe. Except they don't. John 11, there will be a, a literal person named Lazarus who will be raised from the dead. And the enemies of Jesus go out and they say, oh my goodness, well, we can't really, everyone's talking about that. We need to kill Jesus and Lazarus too. That's what they say. The Lord raises a widow's son. The people mock him. There's no, no extra faith. And even far, far, far more important, the greatest moment of power and glory in the history of the world God's son will not just come back to life. He will be resurrected, entering into a new state of existence. The down payment, the first fruits of the new age. And will people believe? No. If you will not hear the word of God and obey it, nothing, nothing will convince you. But that also on the positive end should make us really excited to go home and read our Bibles. 
Like, really? I mean, you get really excited. Well, let's go home and watch the football game. Sure, sure, that's great. That, that's great. Great. PVR it. Watch it later. This is going to outlast the heavens and the earth. These words are actually better than going home and seeing someone raised from the dead. Do you believe that? And that's an incredible thing. I mean, if you had tickets, honestly, if you had tickets that you could go this afternoon, you know, not to the football game, not to, not to the baseball game, but if you could go to the event where, you know, you bought tickets and you just went into the cemetery and at four o'clock people are going to start raising from the dead, like rising from the dead. That would be the hottest ticket in the world if it was legitimate. I mean, that's an incredible thing. You go into the, you know, up from the grave, you know, pop cell. It's like, oh my goodness, that's pretty impressive. And then over there and someone else. Like, that's, that's an amazing thing. You would be excited this afternoon if you were in the seminary to see dead people come back to life. But Jesus says the word of God is better. Oh man, that's a great illustration for Halloween. I should have thought of that sooner. Yeah, coming up. Uh, that's the word of God is more powerful, more enduring, more convincing than seeing someone come back from the dead. That says an awful lot about how amazing this book is, doesn't it? That it really is that awesome. Well, may God, uh, in His grace and by His Spirit, then give us eyes to see and hearts to cherish the law and the prophets and the proclamation of the kingdom of God and his word. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, is all that we need. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.